A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored by the All Daf app. Get your All Daf Daf Yaimi app with some of the greatest Magide Shiurim, all kinds of supplements to the Daf, and especially during these times when it's difficult to attend the regular Daf Yaimi Shir. Um, you can have, you want to keep the consistency, you want to keep up the DAF, download the old DAF app today. Shiurim on all types of other Masechtas as well for those who are at home and want to study something else. You want to get the uh, DAF, old DAF app, so download it today. Um, again, I hope everyone is okay and healthy and dealing with this uh, very challenging time. Um, and uh, really, uh, best wishes to everyone. Um, again, the topic I chose is uh, to afford the opportunity of of escape of uh, almost like a fantasy because uh, this is um, this is a topic that's again from the far end of the world, from the Far East, actually, when Jews uh, lived in the Far East. Uh, we're talking about how this originated uh, in, in the Far East. Um, so. The topic we're going to discuss today, the international dateline controversy, was when refugees during World War II, Jewish refugees, were stuck in Koba, Japan, and um, Kuba, Koba, however you pronounce it, and um, and the uh, and the ramifications of how that uh, of when to keep Shabbos. Was it on the day of Shabbos? Was it on Sunday? We'll talk about the whole story um, of those refugees and during their sojourn in Japan during that time. That's that's what we'll talk about a little bit today. I just want to make a little disclaimer before I get into the the real story, is that this is a story that is full of a lot of halachic ramifications and discussions and disputes, and it's pretty complicated halacha. And this is also involves um, science. It involves a lot of uh, a lot of understanding of science. And neither of those uh, realms of knowledge I have any acquaintance with whatsoever. I don't know halacha, especially not this halacha, and I definitely don't know science. When I was originally researching the International Dateline Controversy, and I asked someone who knows a little bit about it, and he started 
telling me, and I realized it involves numbers, and he started telling me how many degrees and, and things like that, and I completely lost him. So I didn't even bother trying since then. So I'm not getting into the halachic discussion. I'm definitely not getting into the scientific discussion. And so really I have no place talking about it altogether, but it happens to also have taken place in a historical context, and it's a fascinating story. And and uh, we'll talk just in focus, completely focus on that aspect of it. So any questions and comments uh, that you may have and send over, if you're expecting me to to answer about any halacha or science, then don't bother, because I don't know. So um, So our story goes to you know, where this the international date line is, where it would be considered, and we know that the regular international date line, we know that, is, is ground, you know, the zero degrees is in Greenwich uh, in, in England, the uh, prime meridian, and then, then it, and then the international date line is somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, and that was agreed on by basically all nations of the world at some point, and the halacha saw things differently, and it's something that was discussed already many years ago in the time of the Rishayinim and in medieval times. And whenever the question was discussed, it was purely theoretical. There was never any practical uh, consideration there because there were no Jewish communities in the Far East when it was originally discussed. What happens is, is that, but, it, but, the, but the halachic reality existed and it was talked about and there were opinions expressed about it as a theoretical discussion. The first time it's posed to an actual rabbi as a real question is when there are Jewish communities out in the Far East, and that happens as a result of the Russian Revolution in 1917, is that Russian Jews um, are running all over, and some of them went east. And uh, there was a sizable Jewish community that sprouted in Harbin, Harbin, in China. Today it's in China. Um, it was then, it was for a period of time under Russian control, definitely a lot of Russian influence. It had a lot of European influence. It was a, a textile, uh, not, not really textiles, not really like a fashion center and tourist capital. And eventually it was under control of the Japanese, um, during the 1930s and 40s during World War II. But the Harbin Jewish community was a new community and it was Russian Jews. And then there eventually was even a small, Jewish community, tiny Jewish community that, that sprang up in Kobe, Japan, also as a result of the Russian Revolution. Now, this brand new, tiny, simple Jews, 27 families was the entire community at this time, it's following World War I. And they find out at some point that they're living in a place that it's not clear where the international date line is and which day they should be keeping Shabbos. If they're on one side of the international date line, then they keep Shabbos on the day that the Japanese consider it Saturday, like the rest of the country, like the rest of the world. If the halachic international date line is in a different place, and then Japan falls on the other side of that date line, then it would seem that the halachic Shabbos is on what the Japanese are going to call Sunday, and they would be keeping a different day of Shabbos than the rest of the world, which would make things very confusing and challenging, and that's what the oh, the question was. And they're bewildered. They're a small community of simple Jews. So they send the question to the closest Jewish community, which was what I just mentioned, Harbin, in China, where the rabbi was uh, an impressive Torah personality named Ramosha Aaron Kisilov. 
And he's the first rabbi that we know of that actually paskined as a practical question for people who really need to know what to do. Perhaps there were Jewish travelers there before then, but I'm not, I'm not aware of, 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 uh, of, how, of uh, an earlier story of if it came up in a practical. I'm sure there, I'm sure there is though. Um, so he tells them, uh, go, go, you, you keep, he went through the question. He said, you keep Shabbos on, Saturday, on the day that the Japanese consider Shabbos, like the rest of the world, you don't have to do anything different, and that's good, you're on that side of the halachic international date line. Now, by the way, there's still a tiny, till today, there's a very small, almost almost, uh, almost non-existent uh, Jewish community in Kobe, Japan today. They still run a synagogue. In fact, there's a guy who uh, who sits next to me in shul in the normal times when we actually go to shul, um, there's a guy in my shul, lives down the block from me, who lived in Kobe, Japan for over 20 years, and he told me he was very active in the in the shul there. So it's there's still it's still uh, still I guess a practical question. In any event, so the um, the but what happens is is that uh, the question becomes more real when the refugees in Lithuania who are stuck in Lithuania, Jewish refugees, they find out uh, this this venue of escape through the a great uh, story and and heroism of uh, Chiuni Sugihara, which is, of course, a major story in itself, not just another story. And perhaps one day we won't just devote a, an episode to the story of the escape to Shanghai through the through Japan, but it probably deserves its own series. It's such a it's such a long and very interesting and exciting and amazing story. So we'll we'll definitely get to it one day and. Um, and uh, but the but the but event but they find out in the summer of 1940 that they're going to be ending up in Japan at some point, and now the question arises by these Polish and Lithuanian Jewish refugees: Well, what's this place called Japan, and where does it stand, and what are all the halachic ramifications? And the question arose about the international dateline. So now it arises again, even before they leave, right when they're ready. Uh, in in Lithuania, when they received the visas for the first time, and um, you know, already it was sent to different questions. Rabbi Simchazelig Rieger, the famous uh, Dayan of Brisk, he was asked the question, possibly even by the Briskerov himself, who was in Vilna at the time, and uh, he said that um, because it's questionable, so you you don't do. Any malacha dairaisa, any Torah ordained, uh, Torah forbidden acts of malacha on Shabbos, and uh, on both days, on Shabbos and on Sunday. Don't do any dairaisa on Shabbos or on Sunday because it's not clear if it's Shabbos or Sunday. However, what about putting on tefillin? So he said, put on tefillin on Sunday, but do it on on uh, on altanai, a conditional wearing of the tefillin that it's not not clear if you're supposed to be putting on tefillin. Without getting into the whole halachic uh, nitty gritty, all the details about how what exactly that means and what you're supposed to do. In other words, it's still not clear. However, it was also said in the name of Reb Chaim Brisker at the time that uh, no, it's not a suffolk at all. Shabbos is really Sunday. It's not Saturday. It's Sunday. So Shabbos is Sunday. You think Shabbos is always on Shabbos? Shabbos happens to be on Sunday in Japan, a new world. And that's what it was said in the name of Reb Chaim Brisker. Even before they leave, this comes up, and therefore when they arrive there, there's confusion. It's not clear how they should behave. So within the refugee community, when they do arrive in Kobe, Japan, 
in the, um, they come there towards the end of the winter, some of them come in the middle of the winter of 1941, the beginning of 1941. By Pesach, most of the refugees were there. So it's around March, April 1941. They remained there for quite a few months, about eight, nine months, depending on when they arrived. And, uh, and they didn't really resolve the question. So there's all different types of behaviors about what the refugees did, about which day is Shabbos. So some, some, uh, they kept, they didn't do any malacha doiraisa, any of the serious stuff they did not do on both days, both Shabbos and on Sunday. And then depending on who they believed was more correct, they, or which day was more correct. So on the, on, the, on you know, some who believed that Shabbos was really on Saturday, Shabbos is Shabbos. So they wouldn't do any Malacha Dei Raisa or Malacha Durabanan on Shabbos. And then on Sunday, they wouldn't do Malacha Dei Raisa, but they would do Durabanan stuff. And some of them did the opposite. They didn't do Malacha Dei Raisa or Durabanan on Sunday. And on Shabbos, the real, the, the, on Saturday, what was normally Shabbos, they would do, would not do only Malacha Dei Raisa. So a lot of confusion going on, and it's not really clear. The great Amshan of a Rebbe, who, in the spirit of Amshana Varka, always was trying to bring people together, which was his legacy, and there's definitely so much to say about Reb Shimon Shalom Kalish, the great Amshana of Rebbe, who was a legend in both Japan and Shanghai, and what he did for the larger Jewish community, and all the refugees, and his love for them, and, and care, and uh, unbelievable. There's really so much to say about him as a person, and his leadership, and and in general, the way of Amshana and Varka was Avas Yisrael, and to bring people together, and there's plenty to say about it. So in the, in light of that, he said, no, let's try to do everything together. Let's keep Shabbos for two days straight. Everything, Dairai said, Rabbanan, we're keeping two days of Shabbos, a nice long weekend, a nice long Shabbos. You know, we keep two days Yantif all the time. It could work out. Let's keep two days. And many, many people actually followed that and they kept two full Shabbos uh, for two days. What happens? Uh, these are all, by Shabbos, it's like easy, you know, keeping Shabbos two days straight. What does it mean? It means having a Kiddush two days straight, having Kiddush club, a herring, you know, longer davening. I mean, you know, it's, there's, it's not that hard. So you don't do malacha, it's hard, you can't work for another day. All right, you work things out. But what's happening is, is that over the summer, people see that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming around the corner. The first issue was going to be Rosh Hashanah, because Rosh Hashanah that year, 1941, fell out on Monday and Tuesday. Now, if you keep Shabbos, Shabbos and Sunday, and then you'd have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you'd have to have three days of Rosh Hashanah because of this issue. So that means you'd be keeping five days straight, which is not so easy. You know, people kvetch about three-day yantif, this would be five days, it's a little rough. But what gets worse is that Yom Kippur the next week, is that they would have to fast for two days straight if they kept both days, which is not feasible. For most people, it would be too difficult. And what are they going to do? So now the question arises again. It becomes a dispute and a controversy. And now it becomes a question heard around the world. Everywhere, Every group within the greater refugee, talking about thousands and thousands of refugees, the refugee community was a diverse community with many thousands of people, Religious, secular, elderly, young from different parts of Poland and from Lithuania, uh, Hasidic, uh, um, Litvish, Yeshivish, every single type of Jew was among this refugee community, and they send their questions all over. So the question arrives at the rabbis uh, around the world, 
um, you know, the local rabbis, relatively local and, you know, not, not exactly local. There aren't any uh, native local. There are plenty of rabbis among the refugees, but not any native local rabbis. So they sent to Harbin again, where this Rabbi Sharon Kisilov was still the rabbi. And they send also to the, to the other local sort of local Jewish community, Shanghai, not even knowing that they're going to end up there next year when the, when the Japanese dumped them all there. Where Meir Ashkenazi, the great uh, and also legendary, spoke about him in another episode earlier, uh, about him. They sent him the question as well. They also send the question further. There's a group of the Taimchei Tmimim Yeshiva of Chabad of Lubavitch. Among the refugees, they send the question to the Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rayats in New York by that time. And, um, and then there's, um, it's also sent to Eretz Yisrael. There's a famous telegram. Uh, quite a famous telegram that that exists. We we know where the telegram. We see. We you know we have a copy of it. Then it's addressed to Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Herzog, the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Chaski Mishkovsky, Rabbi Finkel, the Mirashiva, the Briskarov, the Ger Rebbe, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer. It's it's addressed to all of them. Even though the main recipient seems to have been Rabbi Herzog, who as the chief rabbi he was sent the question. And he calls an asifa. He calls a gathering of great rabbis to discuss the question. It's a really serious question um, about how to deal with this. So, and it arises in the summer in looking towards Yom Kippur, what's going to happen. By the way, Rav Herzog was a major player in this whole refugee story. It wasn't just that he was asked this technical halacha question. He was the one who, with great dedication and serious nefesh and really, um, you know, working tireless. Tirelessly, tireless efforts to get the rabbis out of uh, out of Europe. He was, you know, majorly responsible for getting the Briskarov, Rabbi Tzlikzav Soloveitchik, and Rabbi Zalman Sarovsky, and Rabbi Finkel, Rav Shach, and many, many others. He was the one who got their visas. He convinced the British to give clergy visas, which would be above the quota. Similar stuff that happened in America. The Varatzol was able to get like Tress, the Varatzol. I remember which um, or both. Got, uh, you know, rabbi clear, clergy visas above the regular quotas. So Rav Herzog was one who really got all those, uh, Rabbanim and Gedele Yisrael, which it's important to mention that Rav Herzog was responsible for that because I'm not sure how many, uh, people remember it or even want to remember it. Either way, so, so the, the, um, so he, he, he and other rabbis get the question and everyone has to deal with this question now. So what happens is, is that the majority of rabbis and rabbis, the Lubavitch Rebbe, the Ger Rebbe, the Imre Emes, Rabbi Sizal Meltzer, Rav Herzog himself, Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was the Rav in Yerushalayim, Rabbi Chil Mechotekachinsky, who was also a big Pesach in Yerushalayim, involved with the Yeshiva, and the sort of local rabbis there, Rabbi Sharon Kislov, and I believe also Rabbi Ashkenazi, I'm not 100% sure, I should have double-checked that. They all paskin, they all say, Keep the regular day, like the regular Shabbos, Saturday, what the Japanese call Saturday, what everyone else keeps as Shabbos, you keep Shabbos, that's what you should do, and that's what, the, that's what they say. As it happens, though, the, the, um, the, uh, Reblazio Dolfinkel and possibly others who are involved with the question as well bring the question to the Chazanish. In fact, Rebbeinah Shvinkel, Rebbeinah's son, who was single, still a bachar then, he is the one who actually brings the question to the Chazanish, which led to his shidduch, because the Chazanish was impressed with Rebbeinah Shvinkel, and he, he uh, suggests and recommends that he marry his niece, um, Rebbeinah Esther Greinemann, later Finkel. So, so Rebbeinah brings it to the Chazanish, and the Chazanish 
famously paskind differently. He said, no, Shabbos is Sunday. Shabbos, the de- date line, the inter- halachic international date line places Japan on the other side, and therefore Japan is a different day, and therefore they have to keep Sunday is really Shabbos. And that's the halacha, or that's what you got to do. So that's what some people decided to follow. Now it happens to be that it's, it was a bit of a novelty that it even went to the Chazanish because most of the refugees had never even heard of him. He was still somewhat of an unknown. Chazanish also was an incredible man, and there's so much to say about him, and perhaps we'll devote an episode to him one day, or even more than one. He worked very hard for most of his life to keep himself hidden. Even his farm he published anonymously. He was discovered by Reb Chaim Grzegorzewski in Vilna when he lived there. And other people started to hear of him, especially after he moved to Eretz Yisrael. But still, even in 1941, he was still not so famous. And he achieved most of his fame in the last years of his life, which is a whole story. And uh, and here he is being brought this incredible question, and he decisively paskins that it should be on Sunday, and some people decide to follow that. So what happens is, is now that they get this telegram back into... Uh, into into Kobe, Japan, they they they're you know it's during the summer, you know, Yom Kippur is still about two months away, and they now now some people are keeping Shabbos on Shabbos and some people are keeping Shabbos on Sunday. And it becomes this really divisive issue because your roommate might be making Havdalah and you're making Kiddush. And your roommate might be doing Malacha and you're keeping Shabbos. And their two people are both very, very religious Jews. Very traditional Jews, very orthodox. One happened to be following one rabbi, and the other one's following another rabbi. And they're just keeping two different days. An amazingly bizarre situation, which did cause some friction and a little bit of a divisiveness, but they're all listening to their rabbi. They're all doing essentially the right thing, the two legitimate halachic opinions. And this was the um, this was how it played out. In fact, as Yom Kippur came close, and the remaining refugees, we'll see, in a second, that most of the refugees got out before him, Kippur, but the remaining refugees sent again the, a telegram to the Chazanish. Which day should we keep Yom Kippur? Should we keep it on Wednesday or on Thursday? And the Chazanish, in the famous telegram, and this, and I used it as a Bachar in the Yeshiva, I used to eat Shalashudis for a couple of years by an amazing uh, elderly Yerushalmi Jew named Rabnata Freind, who had a wealth of stories, who was a very, very close student. With the uh, Rabbi Sizal Meltzer and Chaim. he helped him write the Evan Azal even, and um, and a very warm, very great guy, and a lot of stories, a lot of great stories that I heard from him. And this is one he would repeat quite often. He said that Rabbi Zalman himself was somewhat involved in the correspondence with the Chazanish. And uh, I'm not sure if the, the, he met the Chazanish or he was just corresponding with him. I didn't, I didn't get, I don't remember how he said it, but somehow Rabbi Zalman was involved there. And uh, the Chazanish famously wrote back to the people who asked about when they should fast in Yom Kippur. He said to them, Ichlu vitsumu Eat on Wednesday and fast on Thursday. And Rabbi Zalman asked the Chazanish, I don't know if it was face to face or he wrote to him, I'm not sure. He said, Shouldn't you tell them that maybe you're telling them eat on Wednesday? Shouldn't you tell them only eat uh, shiurim, you know, with a space, a small amount of food, or maybe try to fast both days if you're healthy enough? I don't know, something like that. And the Chazanish, and this is how we see what a 
tremendous paisik, how confident the Chazanish was in the, in the decisive position and decision that he made. He said, how can I tell them to fast on Wednesday also, or partially fast on Wednesday? Wednesday is Erev Yom Kippur, and there's a mitzvah to eat on Erev Yom Kippur. They're supposed to eat. That's how sure he was about his psak. He had no doubts about it whatsoever. As it happens, the question became moot for most of the refugees because the Japanese, who are now preparing for Pearl Harbor, they get rid of the refugees in August, September of uh, 1941, which corresponded with the Jewish month of El, and they dumped them all in Shanghai, a two-day boat ride away. And lo and behold, a few weeks before him, Kippur, they're back in mainland China, where there's no question about the international dateline. They're in a place where... Things can work out. It's simple. They keep the regular day of Yom Kippur, and that was part of the Hashgacha, part of the providence that, that watched over them, that even this question was taken care of for the most part by them not being in an uncomfortable situation about who to follow and when to fast in Yom Kippur. There were a few refugees who stayed, and it, was a, and it, was, it wasn't an easy one. Some of them fasted on one day and ate on the other, and then, you know, you're living with that situation. Some of them tried to eat only shiurim on one of the days to eat spaced out and in uh, you know time uh, t- they, they spaced out the, uh, the the times that they they ate small amounts of food which a whole a whole way to get out of the main issue of eating on Yom Kippur and some of them actually the young and healthy they went ahead and they said we're going to fast two days straight to make sure we don't eat on Yom Kippur which was not an easy thing so. That was how they got out of it. And I'll end off, oh, it's late, I'll end off with a story um, about a dispute I had with a senior scholar. It was the first time I ever had a dispute with a senior scholar. It was only last year. And uh, and I was right. I was very excited about that. Um, so I'll relate this story and how it's related to this uh, whole thing about Yom Kippur. Uh, I was I heard this lecture, and he said uh, his claim was is that the quest, the halacha question of the international dateline um, costs people lives. Why? How did he back that claim up? Because there were Jews in Lithuania who had the Sugihara visas to Shanghai, and they did not use the visas. Why? Because they were nervous about getting to Shanghai. To, to I'm sorry, not to Shanghai, to Kobe, Japan. To get to Japan, they had the Sugihara visas to Japan, right? You have to remember the Sugihara visas are given in in independent Lithuania in between September 1939 and June 1941. Eastern Poland and the Baltic states are in an interesting situation because they're not under Nazi control yet. They're first in the Baltic states; they're independent, and then later there's a Soviet takeover, like in Eastern Poland. There's also in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. There's a Soviet takeover. They become part of the Soviet Union in the summer of 1940. So that's what the context of the Sugihara visas are. They're, you know, he doesn't give them out when it's under Nazi occupation, which is a crucial part of that story, which we'll get to some other time. In any event, so his claim was is that the people got the Sugihara visas and they didn't use them. Why didn't they use them? Because they were nervous about getting to Japan on Yom Kippur, because they didn't want to have this question about the international dateline. They didn't want to have to fast two days. They said, let's go after Yom Kippur. And by the time it was after Yom Kippur, it was too late, the Nazis came. And therefore their lives were lost. So the question of the international dateline cost people lives. 
So that was his claim. That was the scholar's claim. And, and, and I proved it wrong. So I'll, I'll share that with you. So aside from the fact that the whole thing is unlikely, because you're talking about people who are panicked. You know, most people did not take the Sugihara visas to Japan. They decided to wait it out. So the people who took it are the ones who are trying to get out. And the prospect of fasting two days, I mean, like, no, no. You're trying to get out for your life. The worst thing that can happen is that you might have to fast for two days. It doesn't seem like the, exactly the end of the world. But okay, so it's unlikely. But it's much more than unlikely. It simply can't be. And here we have to go through a little bit of the dates. Its dates are sometimes boring, but here it's going to be exciting. The dates simply don't add up. Sugihara gave out the visas. It was during a two-week period. The whole Sugihara story was a two-week story in August of 1940. August of 1940 is actually close by to Yom Kippur. So that part makes sense. However, the crucial part of the Sugihara story is that once having Japanese visas meant nothing. Because in order to get out of the Soviet Union, you need a Soviet exit visa. And no one knew if they would get one, and actually most thought that they would not get one for obvious reasons. The Soviets usually were not known to give out exit visas. And part of the miracle of the whole story is that the Soviets did give exit visas, which, again, is another story. But in any event, they only applied for the Soviet exit visas in October, November, and they only got replies from the Soviets in November, December. Now, November, December is after Yom Kippur, right? So no one even had the slightest thought of leaving the Soviet Union using the Sugihara visas to Japan until it was way after Yom Kippur, a month or two after Yom Kippur. So they can't be talking about the Yom Kippur of 1940. By the time people had the opportunity to actually utilize the visas, it was after Yom Kippur because before that no one had a Russian exit visa, Soviet exit visa. So it can't be talking about the Yom Kippur of 1940. Now, the people leaving in November, December, they're obviously going to go then. They're not going to be worried about next Yom Kippur. The next Yom Kippur is a long time away. They hope to be in a, any other country, any other destination by that point. So they're obviously not going to be concerned about Yom Kippur. And all the refugees who used the Sugihara visas left over that winter. The last refugees, my wife's grandfather was one of the last refugees who arrived in Vlavidovostok at the edge of uh, the Soviet Union. And he says how he spent Pesach there in April. So he's talking about the last refugees get to, get to Japan um, in, 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 the, in the spring. So Yom Kippur is still far off in the horizon. No one's worried about Yom Kippur yet. It's too far away to be concerned about. And therefore, it's unlikely that any of the refugees would have been worried about Yom Kippur to utilize the visas when it took place over the winter of 1940-41. By the time the next Yom Kippur came around, which was actually the Yom Kippur that some of the refugees spent in Kobe, Japan, and when most refugees were concerned about it, there was no one left back in Lithuania to not use the visas. The Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, Operation Barbarossa, June 22nd. And by that, and within a few months, unfortunately, 90% of Lithuanian Jewry was wiped out by the Einsatzgruppen, Einsatzgruppe A of the SS. And therefore, there was no one left to use the visas and to think about Yom Kippur uh, six months away. So that uh, didn't cost anyone lives, but it's still a fascinating story. I actually wrote, it, wrote this all up, and I asked him, and his response was that he heard it as a testimony 
from an Altamir who was there. So I was okay. That's uh, everyone's entitled to their opinion, and um, and that's a little bit about the the um, story of the international dateline controversy and in its historical context. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and hopefully soon again, tours and trips to places of Jewish history. Stay safe, feel good, download your Aldaf app. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.